On the night of December 29, 1980, Betty Cash, Vicki Landrum, and Colby Landrum, Vicky's seven-year-old grandson, were on their way home to Dayton, Texas, in an Oldsmobile Cutlass at around 9 p.m. As they're driving, they see a light above the trees. Initially thinking that it's an airplane, they figure, well, no big deal. But a little bit later, a diamond-shaped craft comes down from the sky, shooting jets of flame out from its bottom. And in the process, burning Vicky, Betty, and Colby to a lesser extent. This would later become known as the Cash-Landrum UFO incident, one of the most famous cases of a UFO sighting to date, and probably the one with the most evidence, or at least physical evidence, by far. Today on the Mad Scientist Podcast, I am joined by a special co-host, guest, Jennifer Taylor. Jennifer, how's it going? Things are going great. How are things going with you? Oh, things things are just going wonderfully, you know. Been a been a weird been a weird weekend in the UFO world. I'm sure you've noticed from my tweets. I've things seen have... your tweets. Yeah, I I haven't been keeping up with the UFO world, um, but I've I've seen you talking about it. Yeah, things are uh, things have taken a bit of a weird turn recently, and actually they they got even weirder this morning. So not really sure what's going on here. Anyways, um, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk about this case with you. This is one that you have a lot of personal love for right because i went to high school in dayton texas i spent most of my childhood there super cool oh man so is the case you know we're gonna get into the case more further and everything else but is it in dayton itself is it like famous do people talk about it a lot is it or is it is it more kind of like a weird you know oh yeah that happened here but not everyone really knows about it or people don't really talk about it so okay i first heard the story from um and I was a child when I first heard the story. I would say maybe 11 or 12. And I heard the story from an adult. And so I would say the generation ahead of me, um, mm-hmm. that they like it, they talk about it a lot. Like they, a lot of them remember it. Um, but the people that like I went to school with and, and the people that I graduated with, none of them really, like I would talk about it and people were like, what the hell? Like, what are you talking about? And so, <laughs> um, so it wasn't like people like knew about it, but it wasn't anything that was really talked about a whole lot. Mm. And and honestly, I have probably talked about it more with, you know, just other like UFO buffs and like people that are into weird stuff than I ever have with anyone that I, you know, went to school with or grew up with. Um, but at the same time, like people do know about it. It was on Unsolved Mysteries. If you actually go to the Dayton, Texas Wikipedia page, there's a little link to the, the story. But I think most people that I grew up with from there are just like, uh, yeah, like it's a weird thing. And that's so like stereotypically Southeast Texas and most of them just kind of wish it wasn't there. Um, so. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. What's, what's So what's really interesting actually is, so the population of Dayton today is around 8,000 people. Yeah. In 19, in 1980, it was 5,000. And so it's not a, it's not a huge town, right? By any stretch of the imagination. It's pretty dang small, really. No, but our high school is actually really big because the people that go to school there, the population is based on like who lives in the city limits. And there's a sure. huge rural area surrounding the actual city. And so a, like there's a lot of, of neighborhoods um, that all kind of go to school in, this, in, in Dayton. And there's only one high school. Um, and it's a huge school. Even since I left, they've added onto it and they've built onto it. It's this massive building. 
Um, and anyone, and anyone that plays Tex, uh, plays plays football in Texas or has you know done like high school football in Texas, um, you know we're a five A school or maybe it's five A now. It might have been a four A school whenever I was there. I mean it's a four or a five A school, so we play mm. bigger. Like we play big towns. Um, so yeah, like it's I graduated with about four hundred people, so not like huge, but it's not small. This the school's not small, but yeah, it, it is considered a small town. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. Interesting. All right, really cool. Well, so let's uh, let's get right into the Cash Landerm incident itself. Sure. All right. So, uh, so take it away. <laughs> yeah. Um. You kind of gave a, a nice summary of it. So I think one of the very first things that um, that always kind of strikes me is it's the incident itself is associated with Dayton, Texas, but it didn't actually occur in Dayton. It occurred on um, Highway 1485-2100, which runs north-south, and it runs through Huffman and Crosby. And those are to the west of Dayton. The mm. people that experienced this incident were on their way to Dayton because that is where they lived. And they were coming from, I think, the like the New Caney area. They were having dinner or something. Mm. So they're driving southbound on 2100. If you continue driving south, you would eventually hit 1960. And then that road runs east-west, and they would have eventually gone into Dayton. And so they were, and I've been on this stretch of road before. It's very, um, it's like trees. The road's not very well kept. I'm sure it was, sure it looked different in 1980, but um, it's scary down there at night, especially. And there's not a lot of traffic. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you went through the story. They saw a light. They thought at first it was a plane because that area of that's very near the airport. They rounded the corner. They, and that's when they saw the actual craft or whatever it was. Um, the diamond shape came from Colby. He's the one that said mm-hmm. it looked like a diamond. The other two, um, they said, well, you know, it, it might've looked like a diamond. I think that um, Vicky said it looked oblong, but didn't actually say it was a diamond. They all of them are pretty consistent that it looked about the size of the Dayton water tower, so it, which just looks like a typical water tower. Um, so that's about how big it was. And they stopped their car, they got out. Uh, Betty Cash, who was um, the driver, she stayed out of the car for the longest amount of time. Vicky Landrum, her grandson, was in the back seat, so she kind of got out and, and, and went back into the car. While she was out, she kind of stuck her arm out. Um, and her arm was, um, I would say touched by the light a little bit, but she didn't stay out of the car for very long. She went back in because her grandson was upset. Um, and then Betty Cash came back inside. And when she came back, she noted that the car was so hot that she had to use her jacket to open the door handle and the, the dash, the vinyl dash was, I guess, like softened. Uh, mm-hmm. Vicky put her hand on it and it left a handprint, like an impression that uh, Betty claimed was still there the entire time, like until she got rid of the car. So, right. So this, is, so this is uh, this is the a quote directly from the report by QFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, by Alan Hendry, who was a chief investigator. So, quote: um, Betty Cash, fifty-two, was running a truck stop restaurant slash grocery store on the night shift until this incident took place. The incident happened around 9 to 9.15 p.m. on December 29, 1980. Betty was driving her 1980 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme in the company of neighbor Vicki Landrum, 57, and her grandson, Colby, 7, 
They were en route to Huffman from New Caney, Texas, on the Far Market Road, 148F, that connects the two closer to New Caney. Though Huffman is south of New Caney, both women thought they were headed east at this point. Check the detailed maps to be submitted by Schusler, which there are maps too, but whatever. Can't really describe maps in a audio medium. The whole sky seemed bright ahead of them, somewhat to their right. Then the witnesses seemed aware that a vertically oblong form was suspended over the road. The discrepancy in the story as presented to me versus to John Schusler occurs here, pertaining to the reason the car came to a stop. Cash has been telling others that she stopped the car rather than attempt to drive under the flames being emitted down towards the ground from the blindingly luminous form. So what was occurring here was this sort of oblong diamond-esque shape with the top and bottom cut off so they're flattened with lights kind of around the center of the diamond is shooting flames out. So it's kind of bobbing up and down, which is something we actually see a lot or it's reported a lot in UFO cases. So it's bobbing up and then it's slowly starting to fall down and then the flames shoot up and it starts to bob up again. Right. Almost like a balloon where you, you know, when you blow on the balloon from below, it starts to move up again. So, okay. In interviewed separately, Vicky Lander recalled Betty restarting the car, but was unaware why the engine shut down. John Schusler acknowledges being disturbed about this discrepancy. Um, still, it was only poss- it was the only possible glitch in this recent retelling of the event. And so, the the difference here is: did uh, was the car shut off so that she wouldn't drive underneath the flames, or was it shut off because uh, she you know didn't want to get around them? Right or, or had to get around them or whatever, or the, the car stop on its own because it was being affected by the craft, whatever. Um, right, and this interview occurred in April of the following year, and the incident yes. occurred in December. So this was yes. around like four months later that she's remembering, like that when the discrepancy with the, the engine occurred. Yeah. So in this, this is their description of the craft itself. So quote: the uniform blinding, the uniformly blinding light made it difficult to resolve the exact shape of the oblong form. It may have had four points like a diamond. Flames intermittently whooshed downwards towards the road. Later examination showed no marks in the pavement. Additionally, a roar like a freight train permeated the area, and a beeping sound could be heard. The sheer brightness made it difficult for them to regain their night vision afterwards. So, and then like Jen said, they, they kind of got out of the car. They were looking at this light, trying to figure out what this thing was. And now, interestingly, Mrs. Landrum who was, uh, was religious, was, was an evangelical Christian, believed that this was Jesus' second coming. Yeah, she said something like that to, to Colby. And I couldn't tell if this was truly what she thought was happening or if she was saying that to calm Colby down, who was incredibly upset. Yeah, it's, um, in, it's an interesting thing, right? I mean, I don't really know why saying, oh, the world's ending is less upsetting than... Yeah, exactly. Is less upsetting than we don't know what this thing is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'd, I would much rather just not know what something was than thinking it was the end of the world. Well, um, I think the exact quote was something to the effect of "That's Jesus. Jesus is coming. It's going to be okay." Mm, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. Um, she is very religious. She could have very well thought that. I do know that later, they both women were convinced it was the government. They actually, I don't think they ever bought into the extraterrestrial UFO spin on the story they were both no. convinced the government had done this to them yeah so we're so let's let, we're going to keep going down here so again from the qfos report so quote 
everyone felt we're going to quote from this QFOS report for a bit because QFOS is really good. And this is a good report. So, quote, everyone felt considerable heat from the UFO. Yet Biddy was Betty Biddy. Yet Betty was still surprised when the metal door handle was too hot to touch. She was wearing a leather jacket as it was cool outside. She took it off to use as a pot holder. Um, they had been using the car heater on low, but switched to the air conditioner later to cool down the car's interior. Once the UFO started retreating towards the west in the direction of the Houston Intercontinental Airport, according to the witnesses, Betty and Vicky became aware of many helicopters in the area. They flew towards the UFO, surrounded it, and escorted it away. The brilliance of the UFO assisted the witnesses' view of the choppers, allowing them to see that they were different types, including the single and double tandem rotor craft. Betty Cash counted 23. Vicky Landrum stated that there were at least 10 to 12. Colby asserted that he saw the helicopters throughout the entire incident. Betty would later draw one of the large helicopters and send it to her brother, who was in the Air Force for 30 years. He said it was an Air Force carrier. The sketch was done before pictures of helicopters were sent to Betty by John Schusler. As they drove down the road and turned toward Huffman, they got to see the UFO plus helicopters fly off into the distance from three different vantage points. The aspect, this aspect of the event took five to ten minutes. Total duration of the incident then, 10 to 17 minutes. The witnesses do not profess to have lost any memory of time in their trip, end quote. So as soon as this, as soon as this report was made, right, the UFO world started going crazy. They were absolutely fascinated by this because there's a couple of different, a couple of different areas here of, of, or a couple of different interesting pieces Right? The first one is the presence of the helicopters, obviously. That's super weird. The second one is the fact that there was actual physical evidence of these, of this, of whatever this encounter was. Right? These people were burned. Yes. All right. Yeah, and hospitalized. Interestingly. Right? Really, really interestingly. So, um... What essentially happened here, according to you, again, we have – so we don't actually have their uh, medical records, right, obviously. Yeah. However, we, we have descriptions of the radio – we have descriptions of their medical records from a radiologist who investigated. Now, there's a couple of – again, this is from the QFOS report. This is what they described as occurring to them. So, quote – so, Okay. Let's let's uh, let's refresh this here. They see this craft takes about 10 to 17 minutes. It gets low or close enough to them that they are. They feel the heat. The heat is so hot in their car that they need to put on kind of a pot holder to open the door. Then these helicopters come. They seem to float the thing away or they seem to escort it away in some weird way. They see it driving as they drive away. They see it flying away with these helicopters uh, Betty then drops the Landrum's home and she gets home around 9.50 p.m. So, and again, this is when the symptoms, uh, the physical symptoms of their encounter start to happen. So, quote, physiological symptoms started appearing within hours. Her, which means Betty here, her skin was beet red as if they had been on the beach all day in August. Her eyes were burning and tearing. She had felt great during the day and ate a lot at the restaurant that night. Sausage, eggs, etc. Yet by morning, she couldn't eat a bite without feeling sick and vomiting. 
She was too weak with pain to stray from bed and call for help. Her hair was falling out in patches, her head racked with a powerful headache. Half dollar-sized blisters with clear fluid covering her face and scalp. Betty's neck, ear, and eyes were severely swollen. Her pierced earrings had to be removed and her eyes were swollen closed. She was blinded by this until she was hospitalized. Like the other witnesses, she experienced some diarrhea. Even her lips had swollen to three times their normal size. Similar physical events happened to um, Vicky and Colby as well. So, again, quote, Vicky's symptoms were similar to Betty's. Red skin, burning eyes, diarrhea for three days, bad stomach aches. She suffered 50% hair loss on the side of her head favoring the UFO. Remember, she only stayed out of the car half as long as Betty Cash. The fingernails on the one hand that was exposed to the UFO show a side-to-side linear damage. Vicky notes that new tissue is now growing in, replacing the old. Her eye problems seem more serious than Betty's, though. She used to wear glasses for reading only. Now she has a full-time pair, prescribed by Dr. Chandler of Liberty, Liberty, Texas. Furthermore, her vision is filmy. Quote, I don't know whether my eyes are playing tricks on me or not, but at times it's just like people. I'll be looking right at them and they'll turn into a film like. Then I'll rub my eyes and it'll go away, end quote. Dr. Chandler speculated to her about radiation-induced cataracts in 6 to 12 months. Colby seems to have undergone the least severe effects, as if staying in the car afforded him some protection. His face was also sunburned in appearance after the event. As of April, there was only a rough complexion in his cheeks. His diarrhea was so bad that he had to be cleaned for three days like a baby. He also had stomach ache and slight eye problems. The skin on his cheeks came into watery blister, which was knocked off. Mrs. Landrum said that it looks like it will heal well. Colby's worst problems were psychological. He had nightmares for two to three weeks and wet his bed because he was afraid to get up at night. He didn't want to drive in a car at night. He also routinely slept in his own bed until the incident. It wasn't until February that he could sleep without his mother's company. His grades had fallen off at school, but are back to normal, A's now. Betty Cash was mad at the World Weekly News, stating that the child wasn't hurt because of these problems. End quote. And in a problem that can only exist in America... Mrs. Landrum initially didn't seek medical help because she didn't have the money. However, uh, Vicky was taken to the hospital four days after uh, coming home. And so she was seen at the Parkway General Hospital in Houston. She was there for 15 days. Um, Pretty intense stuff here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And, you know, initially when you just kind of like do a cursory read of this stuff, it makes it sound like, well... Um, the Landrums weren't really hurt that much because they didn't seek medical attention. And then, yeah, like you said, you find out that, well, maybe it was not because they weren't hurt as much, but because they didn't have the financial means to seek help. You know, she, um, this, this was the eighties. I don't remember where she said she worked. Was she the one that was a waitress? Um, one of them is, one of them is a server. Um, I would would assume Miss Landrum was the other one was the owner of the restaurant or worked there or was closing up or, Something, mm-hmm. someone, yeah, they were, at, they, that's why they were at the restaurant. Um, yeah, it's, well, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not sure which of them was a server or if they were just there for fun or whatever. Yeah. However, um, what's interesting about this, I think, is then, um, she, she would later say that the health insurance would have covered the cost of her examinations, but she didn't want to dip into her savings, but again, she was losing all of her hair. She was clearly injured. It's kind of an interesting it's – a, it's a thing that the skeptics in this case point to a lot is 
if she was really as injured as she said she was, you know, it sounds like they needed hospitalization. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and that's borne out by the by the case or the fact that that's what Betty got. Right. She was hospitalized. She was there for 15 days. Um, so it's an interesting kind of part to this story, I think. But anyways. What. What originally happened or what what then occurred was um, Vicky received a phone number for another for a UFO reporting center. For Bob Gribble, the UFO reporting center in Washington, Seattle, Washington. Um, she got that number from the police department. She also tried to call uh, APRO, um, but it wasn't until a tabloid covered um, the story itself that uh, Schusler, John Schusler, got in contact with her. So it, it wasn't until that point, basically. Um, now, MUFON at that point actually had a news broadcast that they set up in order to try to find other witnesses. And so supposedly they found other witnesses, but really the only other witness that we know of is Nellie Zidick, who is 52 at the time. Um, her, her son, um, and his wife. So uh, Mrs. Zedek, her son John, and then his wife Tony, um, supposedly also saw the event itself, but they did not want to describe it or talk any further about it to the Kifos team. But they said that they saw a similar craft about a half hour um, before the Cash Landrum event. So super interesting. And then later on, too, there's the story of them meeting or supposedly meeting one of the helicopter pilots. Right. But he he supposedly didn't want to talk to them. He was like, no, thank you. Um, That's not cool. Right. Yeah. So interesting. So what do you what do you make of this case, Jen? So I think my initial thoughts when when reading all of this is, you know, you said at the top of the show that there's a lot of physical evidence attached to this one. But really, my first thought is that there could have been a lot more if um, if evidence was collected sooner and if 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 people were out there on the ground and doing like the kind of investigation that I would have hoped that they would have done a lot sooner. And, And that's not to criticize because I don't think they really... I don't think anyone really like realized what was happening or that it needed to be investigated until a little bit later. But like, for example, um, there's contradictory statements on whether or not they ever visited the exact spot again to take, you know, like you, you would think that, you know, soil samples or um, like the Texas Department of Health wanted to go out and check for residual radiation. But when they talked to Schusler, he said, well, I, d- I don't know exactly where it happened. We just know it happened somewhere along the road. But then, like, some of these other programs that, you know, that did recreations, they claimed to know exactly where it happened. Um, so, And then another issue is the car with the handprint on the dash. That would have been amazing to get pictures of. Um, but none of those exist. Um, no, they never took any photos of the car. They never – and supposedly, the, supposedly they did analyze the car itself for radiation and found uh, – what's the word? Uh, found none. Found no leftover radiation. Right. Right. Um, however, that in itself doesn't really. So, I mean, I'm sure you're watching Chernobyl, right? Actually, no, I'm not watching oh! Chernobyl. <laughs> what are you doing? It's so good. Oh, I should have assigned homework before you came on. Oh, I'll, Chernobyl, I'll is, <laughs> Chernobyl is so good. Okay. Um, so the thing, one of the interesting things with the Chernobyl show that I think a lot of people will have questions on is why is it that all... With Chernobyl, 
they like had to. Um, so, for instance, they make a big point about the firefighters who were the first on the scene to respond to the Chernobyl disaster, that all of their clothing became radioactive and they themselves actually became radioactive as well. And so um, there's a question, though, because, you know, you don't think or, or normally if you are ionized with the radiation, you yourself do not become radioactive. The difference in that case is that they actually ingested radioactive isotopes that were being released from the reactor constantly, right? There was ash in the air that was radioactive. The water they were spraying was picking up isotopes. Um, you know, everything in that area got infected. That's why all the animals had to be killed, because if you ate the meat, you would have uh, ingested radioactive isotopes. So um, it's the same thing in this case here in some way, or the same reasoning applies here. If this was such a um, – if they were actually burned by radiation – that doesn't necessarily mean that they were hit with or ingested a radioactive isotope or nucleide. Um, and so therefore they, you know, the, the, the car itself may not have been irradiated or, or may not have become radioactive or taken up a radioactive isotope to then further itself becoming radioactive. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. I'm following. Okay. So other challenges to this kind of evidence. So the, I mean, I agree with you hundred percent, right? You would expect there to be more evidence than this especially with a case that was of this intensity in some ways, you would think that there would be. So first off, there would be scorch marks on the ground, right? Or, mm, Well, but if we don't know exactly where it happened, um, you can't tell. We don't right, know that there exactly. wasn't scorch marks on the ground. Exactly. Right. Exactly. No, you're correct. It, it's, it's one of, it's actually a very common frustration with these kind of historical cases, or even when you're, if you're in a car, and, you know, um, just imagine if you were in a car and you were to pick out the exact spot as you're driving home, even something amazing happened to you, right? Or terrible happened to you. Like, imagine you got into a car wreck. You might not be able to point out the exact spot on a highway or on a uh, country road or whatever where your car got into an accident, hit a deer or whatever, right? Because it all starts to look the same. Your brain basically goes into shutoff mode as you're driving, you know, just... It's just what happens when you're doing a repetitive task for a long time. In this case, it seems like that happens a lot of the time. And then even in cases where there is a lot of investigation, and this is definitely a case where there's a lot of investigation, but let's even say like the Betty and Barney Hill case, we have a pretty good idea of what, you know, we know what road it was on. We have an idea of what stuff they passed by before the case happened. It's like a you know like a mile stretch that we can point to and say this is where the incident itself took place. It's still pretty. There's still a lot of uh, disagreement about where the case actually occurred or where the abduction itself happened. You know. So, anyways, so they claim they claim no abduction, but they do claim to have these physical symptoms. Recently, though, and so this was on um, this was from the uh, the episode put out by Skeptoid. Uh, Brian Dunning on the Cashlander incident. And even inside this QFOS, um, what's the word? Even inside of this QFOS little memo, yeah, memo itself, right? It claims that the hair loss was likely due to alopecia and that the other symptoms, and that they're essentially it, it makes the claim or tries to make the claim that the other symptoms are not, weren't really there, right? That it was primarily alopecia. That was the cause of these challenges um, and that there was some there was some uh, what's the word? There was some damage to the eyes potentially for Vicky, 
but that generally um, generally that this was not likely caused by ionizing radiation. Right. So they said that it was they said that it was um, the skin condition itself was either alopecia or cellulitis, which is kind of like an inflammation of the skin. Um, and then with no evidence or no explanation for any of the other things. Now, what they claimed the cellulitis was from, or at least this QFOS report claims, was that it is more in line with a chemical burn than it is in line with radiation damage. Like an aerosol spray. Exactly. Now, why do they say that? It's because that the, to have had such an immediate um, to have had such an immediate response to radiation like that the dosage would have should have been enough to uh, nearly kill them. You would expect it to be a bigger, um, a bigger issue, you know, even in the case of Chernobyl where the damage was intense, people didn't start losing their hair until uh, weeks after or not weeks, but you know, people, people that were exposed to high levels of the radiation itself over a long period of time, didn't start showing symptoms until months later, you know, weeks or months later. So for it to have been so acute that they got home with a sunburn or they got home with these physical symptoms, that suggests a very high dosage of radiation, which, um, which probably would have killed them or done a lot more damage than them living after the event suggests. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. But I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know if I really buy that. What do you think? So what do you think about Dr. Peter Rank's hypothesis that it was possibly microwave radiation, which, um, and, and I don't know a whole lot about the different types of radiation and, and what it might have done, but there was this idea floating around that um, that what was actually going on was like a... And I, I don't remember, I, I don't remember like the name for the test, but it's, it's the, they were developing aircraft and, 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 and systems that would like jam radio frequencies and try to make it difficult to find you. Um, and so they would do these tests where they would send an aircraft out and they would, they would try to do that by using these like microwave radiation, microwave radiation essentially. And then the helicopters, their job then I guess is to, to try to find you um, and see like, how well like how well this is working. And so if that was what was going on, then maybe the, the hypothesis goes, maybe it could have been microwave radiation. That's why the car would have heated up. Um, it, is that something that might cause these symptoms um, in the way that we see? I don't know enough about radiation to really comment, but I mean, I, I thought that it sounded plausible to me whenever I was reading the hypothesis. So, <laughs> okay. So radiation, there are, um, okay. What, what, radiation really is right so is just a um so hold on a second i'm looking up the i want to look up the electromagnetic uh there we go okay. here we go all right oh yeah that, that's what it is the the ecm yeah so okay so um electromagnetic radiation right or kind of the electromagnetic spectrum goes all the way from gamma rays 
which is a frequency of um, 10 to the 24th hertz, all the way down to like 10 to like the 19th, 10 to the 20th hertz. Then X-ray, which is from like 10 to the 19th to 10 to the 17th. Then ultraviolet, which is 10 to the 16th down um, to around the visible spectrum, which is just below UV, right? And that's looking at, um, that's between somewhere around like 10 to the, like 10 to the 15th to 10 to the 14th. It's just smack dab in that middle between UV and IR. Then you have infrared, then microwave, then FM radio, AM radio waves, and then long wave radio waves. The energy of a electromagnetic wave is related to both its frequency and its wavelength, which are inversely proportional. And those are proportional to each other based on the speed of light. Does that make sense? Yes. Cool. Okay. So, what this means then is that the um, as your wavelength gets bigger, so as the literal distance of the wave itself gets bigger, the frequency gets lower. So the frequency is like how many times it goes up and down in a given time period. And the wavelength is literally the distance of, of space it covers. So microwaves are on the order of like 10 to the minus second meter. So that's like centimeters um, to like millimeters. Gamma rays are 10 to the minus 16th wavelength. So that's like really super, super small, right? That's why gamma rays are more dangerous to us than let's say microwaves, which although microwaves and x-rays are dangerous, the reason gamma rays are so dangerous is that they can actually interfere with our atomic structure itself. Does that make sense? Yes. Whereas microwaves are so big that they mostly, like a microwave oven, the way it works, is it actually heats up water inside of a material by bombarding it with radiation. All of that to be said, we don't have a lot of studies on the effect, like there are a lot of studies on the effect of microwaves on, um, what's the word? There are effects... There are studies on the effect of microwave radiation on humans. Honestly, a lot of our understanding of the way that radiation itself hurts humans or hurts beings or organisms generally are from like radio, like nuclear uh, explosions, like, you know, either from war or from uh, accidents like, say, Chernobyl. But in general, what we can think of with microwave radiation is you have the effects of something getting super hot. And then you have the effects of something getting um, getting irradiated itself or being um, potentially having your cellular structure damaged by the microwave radiation. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the thing with microwave radiation is that in all of the studies that we have done, it appears that the organ that is the most likely to be affected by microwave radiation is the brain. But they had no neurological symptoms at all, right? They had, um, they had, they. It seems like they had thermal radiation effects in the burns and the blisters and the hair falling out and all that stuff. But at that, I mean, I, it's hard to gauge again how much time they would need to be exposed to microwave radiation for it to have affected their brain. But I would expect that they would have had some cognition difficulties or other difficulties after the fact that are different than you would expect from normal, let's say, radiation effects. 
Well, were they ever tested for those kinds of problems? I mean, it, I, I understand that they were seen by doctors for their obvious physiological problems. Um, but did any of them ever see a psychologist or any kind of cognitive behavioral therapist or like, was that ever actually looked at? I, yeah, I don't know. Actually, that's the thing. I don't, I don't think, I don't think they really were tested for any of those kinds of things. I'm sure they were affected for psychological. Here's the thing though, too, right? When people have an event like this and then they're told, well, you should get psychological testing. I can imagine a lot of the times they would be um, offended. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, oh my God, what do you mean? So that could definitely be the case. However, um, so here, we're going to, I'm going to read this effect. So this is a section from the journal uh, Military Medical Research from 2015 by um, How et al. It's titled Effects of Microwave Radiation on Brain Energy Metabolism and Related Mechanisms. So quote, the biological effects of microwave radiation fall into two types, thermal and non-thermal effects. Both are present, with thermal effects prominent in the case of high-power and high-frequency microwave radiation, and non-thermal effects predominate in the case of low-power microwave radiation. Microwave radiation has multifaceted effects on many systems within an organism, including the nervous, endocrine, cardiovascular, immune, reproductive, and hematopoietic systems. The brain always requires a high rate of oxygen and energy consumption to maintain regular functions. Therefore, this organ is sensitive to non-infectious stimuli such as ionizing radiation and hypoxia. Research from our group and from others has demonstrated that microwave radiation damages hippocampal structures in rats, impairs long-term potentiation, decreases neurotransmitter concentrations, reduces synaptic vesicles in numbers, and results in memory impairment. Thus, the brain is generally accepted as the most sensitive organ, target organ for microwave radiation. The damaging effects of microwave radiation on the brain include brain dysfunction and brain structural damage. An epidemiological survey found that microwave radiation causes human fatigue, headache, excitement, dreams, memory loss, and other symptoms of neuroasthenia. In addition, there were impaired learning and memory abilities in rats after microwave radiation, as determined by the Morris water maze. Microwave radiation may also lead to neuronal shrinkage, nuclear condensation, mitochondrial swelling, an expanded endoplasmic reticulum, alterations to the synaptic gaps, and widened vascular endothelial connections, where mitochondrial injury occurred earlier and more severely, end quote. All right. So, so what does that mean? <laughs> so um, what it means essentially is that if, okay, what it means essentially is if it was high-energy microwave radiation, they would likely have only seen the effects of um, of thermal damage. So burning, hair loss, those kinds of things. If they were, if they were, however, subject to short term or not short term, but short energy, short wave um, microwave radiation, then it is likely that they would have seen brain damage or brain dysfunction. So they would have had, they would have felt more tired generally they would have had consistent and really bad headaches. They would have had um, memory loss. Essentially, it, it would have been like uh, they were going through dementia early, right? Um, they would also have had trouble learning, trouble, um, trouble with their memory. So the fact that Colby retained his school grades after a time – I mean, here's the thing, though, too. 
the brain is amazing in its ability to um, heal itself. You know what I mean? Like the brain can, the brain can come back from all kinds of things. You know, people have been shot in the head and then been fine afterwards. You know what I mean? So it's hard to know. It's hard to know in this case, exactly what the issue would be. However, what it looks like is that in general with these cases of, you know, microwave radiation, it leads to the damage of the mitochondria inside your cells, uh, which then causes your basically your body not to be able to digest and create energy. So you lose um, you lose energy. You your brain doesn't have enough energy to perform its functions, and so then your brain starts to essentially uh, starve itself to death or not gain the ex- the oxygen that it needs. And so it's just like if you were to put, say put yourself into a coma or something, um, you know your brain would would start to decay, would start to rot and die. So I don't know. The microwave theory is interesting, but it kind of doesn't. The other thing too, that makes it a challenge is why would this thing be outputting microwaves? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. Um, So from the KUFOS report, and this is what I was looking for earlier that I was trying to remember. Okay. When, so they talked to somebody named Gene Grinnaker. Mm-hmm. who works for the Radar Applications Branch of the Georgia Institute of Technology. He was also on the KUFOS board. Mm-hmm. When he was told this story, he said, this reminds me a whole lot of electronic countermeasure exercises. And that's the word I was trying to think of earlier. Um, ECM. Mm. Um, how it works, and to quote again from the KUFOS report, a target aircraft would use, utilize a transmitter designed to jam radar, radar frequencies. Search planes or helicopters would use radar direction finding techniques to locate the target craft and escort it back to the base. Grinegar worked with ECM transmitters from 1971 to 1973. Much of the information, once classified, is now accessible in Aviation Week and other sources, he says. The downward flames reported by Cash and Landrum made him wonder if Harrier aircraft are used by the Marines for ECM. Some phone calls revealed that they do. ECM transmitters are fitted on board these uh, VTOL vehicles. And in, in parentheticals, it says not as external pods. It says mm. exercises are routinely conducted at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, Nevada, Nevada, and Elgin Air Force Base in Florida with foreign radar setups jammed by the Harrier. So that's just a description of, of how these, you know, how these test flights works and, and how the, how the tests work. Um, the person that wrote this KUFOS report seems to think that this actually is a plausible explanation, or at least plausible enough to include it into the report. Well, here's the thing, right? It, it, I think it would have to come from so – this is actually from the – this is from the Naval Safety Center. Um, this is from their website on um, – what's the word? On acquisition safety, radio frequency radiation RFR hazards. So – Excessive levels of exposure to RFR can result in adverse acute immediate effects on people such as involuntary muscle contractions, electrical shocks, burns, and excessive heating of tissue. High-level electromagnetic energy produced by RFR can also induce electrical currents or voltages that may cause premature activation of electro-explosive devices and electrical arcs that may ignite, ignite flammable materials. 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 Materials! Modern communication radar transmitters aboard Navy ships can produce high-intensity radiofrequency radiation environments that are potentially hazardous to operating and maintenance personnel, ordnance and fuels, and associated equipment. So, that's really interesting. 
Right. So this this is from their section on um, thermal effects from radio from radar um, radiation damage. So biological effects that result from heating of tissue by RF energy are often referred to as thermal effects. Exposure to very high levels of RF radiation can be harmful due to the ability of RF energy to heat biological tissues. In a healthy human body, the thermal regulatory system will cope with the absorbed heat until it reaches the point at which it cannot maintain a stable body core temperature. Beyond this point, the body may experience hyperthermia, heat exhaustion, and or irreversible damage to human tissue if the cell temperature reaches about 43 degrees Celsius. There is a higher risk of heat damage for organs that have poor temperature control, such as the lens of the eye and the testes. The amount of absorbed energy to produce thermal stress is affected by the health of the individual, environmental conditions, and physical activity. Radiated energy can also result in high levels of induced and contact current through the body when in close proximity to high-power RF transmitting antennas. The biological hazards associated with electromagnetic radiation, established by the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, IEEE, C95.1 Standards Committee, and adopted by the Tri-State Tri-Service Electromagnetic Radiation Panel, is in whatever. All right. That is a much better explanation, I think, or a much better option, which is that the ship itself may not have been generating microwaves, but perhaps the helicopters were generating radio frequency waves trying to communicate or affect the ship in some way. That is interesting because the helicopters, I thought, were a very interesting part of this story, especially since the investigation could not pin down who those helicopters belonged to and where they came well, from. I was going to say, this leads to probably the most interesting part of all of this, which is the legal case that Cash and Landrum filed against the United States government. Right. Yes. So, um, which you after, you never so like I've never heard of that in any other. I mean, have you in any other UFO incident story? Has is this the only one with a lawsuit? I think this is this is probably the only one with a lawsuit. This is also though like the only one with real physical continue. You know, there are other cases like the Delphos ring and whatever where there are physical damage in some ways. This is though the only one where it's like. It's not, you know, like conjunctivitis of the eye that goes away in a day. This was like burns and hair loss for a week or so. You know what I mean? Right. This was this was kind of continued. Uh, they needed continuous care for a little bit. So what run us through the legal case? What happened here? OK, so initially this started with a phone call to um, their senators and their senators told them, hey, you should go check out, um, you should go to Austin and you should go check out, it was, it's an Air Force base that's no longer there. Um, yeah, Bergstrom Air Force it. Base. And the, yeah. And the senators, the senators were Lloyd Benston and John Tower. Yeah. So they go, they go essentially to the JAG office when they go to the claims department of the JAG office and they tell their story, they tell what happened. Um and the Air Force people just told them, like, hey, look, um, we don't really investigate UFOs anymore. Um, but here's a, you know, here's a form you can fill out to, you know, file for damages. Um, and they suggested filing a lawsuit. Yep. Um, so that is that is what they did. They hired an attorney from New York um, who did file this lawsuit. Um, and, and, and weirdly, 
So when I first heard about this, I was so excited to figure out who was named in the lawsuit um, because I know, spoiler alert, it was dismissed. Um, and the, the main reason why it was dismissed is because they couldn't, there was no evidence that the craft involved actually belonged to the military. And so I was thinking, mm. oh, well, maybe they named the wrong defendant. Like, maybe this is a technicality. Like, maybe you named the Air Force and really it was an, you know, maybe it was an Army vehicle. No. I mean, they sued the U.S. government. Like, blanket. Like, mm. everybody. Um, and after what I think was a pretty thorough investigation on where the, like, where the helicopters could have possibly come from, it mm. was determined mm-hmm. that there was no evidence that either the helicopters or the object in question belonged to the military or to the government. And because of that, the lawsuit was dismissed. And the lawsuit was, it was years of litigation. Um, mm. But most of that, we don't have the documents. Essentially, all we have is, um, we have the petition. We have mm. some requests for discovery. We don't, we don't have the answers. Like We have the interrogatories and we have the requests for production. I didn't see where we could look at the answers. And we also got this, um, it's a document that's essentially a request, or not not a request, it's a, a clarification of some of the details where they give a, a more clear description of the craft and the fact that it made a beep beep sound. Um, and then some affidavits by, um, by members of the military that said, that's not our plane. We, you know, we don't know what that craft is. And then it was dismissed. Um, I'm sure there's right. many, many more documents that we can't see, Um but like that's 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 what I can summarize based on what I looked at. So yeah, as far as as far as I can tell, or as far as I have read, one of the mili- one of the Air Force's re- you know responses to their asking about this kind of thing was we don't have any diamond shaped craft, <laughs> yeah. which is interesting, right? Um, you know, it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird. It's just a weird case. It is. You know what I mean? Real, it is. I mean, and you have to like, it's just, it's, it's always really weird to look at a legal document and it's like UFO refers to, um, it's just, and I think part of the criticism that I've read on, uh, Peter Gersten, which is, uh, he was the attorney representing Cash and Landrum. Uh-huh. I, I've read a criticism on him that basically he didn't care about the lawsuit. He didn't care about making his clients whole and he didn't care about that. What he cared about was using this lawsuit as a means to get some documents declassified about UFOs. And this was a a fishing expedition for him. And I don't know if that's true or not. um, But if that's the case, then that is actually very sad because Mm -hmm. it really does seem like these people were hurt. They were injured. um, They needed care. They suffered, you know, at least the child suffered, you know, psychological damage and they they probably should have been compensated for that. And it's it's really it's, sad that the government just took a hands-off, we don't know what's going on kind of approach to it. Well, it's such a weird, it's such a weird position. You know, it's such a weird position for the government to have been put, like, it's such a weird, in either case, of the government was involved or the government wasn't involved, they're kind of in an impossible position. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If the government... If the government said if they weren't involved and they just paid them to kind of, you know, we don't know what it was. We're sorry something happened to you. If they just lost the lawsuit. That would be taken as a win by the UFO community that, aha, the government really was involved. Right. You know, it, as opposed to if they weren't involved and then they lost, 
that would also be taken as proof that the government was involved and this was a shady case. Do you know what I'm saying? But if that's, you know, if that's the position that you're put in, then why not take this to like a confidential mediation? Why not work out a confidential settlement agreement and, and pay the people off so that they go away and stop talking to the media about it? That would be my, that would be what you would suggest. See, that's the thing though, right? If they, nothing, you know, nothing in the UFO world ever stays, um, hidden for very long because, you know, UFO people are such, um, we are, we are just such impossible nerds that, <laughs> you know, like everything has to come to the surface. So <laughs> I, it is, it's, it's very interesting though for me because I can't, I, you know, I've said on the show many times, I have yet to see a case that actually makes me think that there's ever, you know, there really is anything to any of this stuff. However, this would be one of the best. This is the best case, I think, in my mind that's out there, really. It is super interesting that they were it's sad, but it's very interesting that there were physical effects. Now, what's what's weird is so um, Betty Cash died at the age of 71 on December 29th, 1998. And that was 18 years after that first encounter. Uh, Vicki Landrum died September 12th, 2007. Um, right before her 84th birthday. So both of these people, and I, and I, and I don't think there's very much evidence or I don't think there's a whole lot of information out there about Colby, right? Were you able to find any or not really? Right? No, I think he might've done one interview later. Um, Hmm. but no, otherwise I haven't really been able to find any information on him. Yeah. I can't imagine he wants to get involved really. Um, especially with the psychological, you know, the fear that it caused him or it appeared to have caused him. Um, what's interesting, I think is that these two women survived a very long time after the fact they lived to be, you know, the average age essentially in the United States, somewhere between 70 and 85 years old. They, you know, didn't seem to have continuous health problems, right? Maybe. Um, for the most part, we really aren't able to know. look at other people's medical records. And, well, yeah, they, sure. you know, I, who knows? Who knows yeah. how they lived out the rest of their life? You were talking about dementia before. And, and I mean, we just don't know. Like, they, we have no, yeah. We have no one was monitoring them in any official capacity. Um, and if they were treated, if they were treated for injuries or illness after the fact, unless the family comes forward and offers up this information, I mean, it's. They're it's, it's private records. We can't look at them. Yeah. Wild stuff. So some of the arguments that, that people have made against this case, um, one of the first ones is I think kind of crazy, which is this idea that they saw a, they saw a mirage. Um, oh, I saw that. Yeah. On the road itself. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, especially a mirage. How would they have been hurt? You know, we know that they were they were they had these burns. We know that they lost hair, so I don't, it's really kind of hard to see that, right? Um, yeah. Another one is people ask, you know, well, what what was their health like before the event? That one's kind of interesting for me. That I think, you know, um, what's the word? I don't think these people were already injured before the case, right? You know, yeah. I think people would have come out and said, like, no, it's not. You know, that's not. Right. That's craziness. Right. I also think that, frankly, the government would have known that and shown it in their uh, lawsuit. 
And I think it would have made, been made a bigger deal of, frankly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I was going to yeah. add that as well, because the reason for the dismissal was we don't have any diamond craft like that. It wasn't a causation. Like the causation angle would have been a great cop out for, yes. the, for the government if they had that evidence available to them. And so I don't think that there's any evidence that any of these medical issues existed before December 29th, 1980. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to make that case. Now, I think maybe the most interesting investigation of the case is from Brian Dunning of Skeptoid. Um, what he suggests is that essentially they made up what his, what his suggestion is, I think probably made best by this quote here, um, which is quote, in my experience, it's completely plausible that cash and Landrum wrongly, but honestly place the blame for their health problems onto whatever they saw. And even push the truth a bit, trying to get the Air Force to pay for it. When you believe in your heart that the Air Force did something wrong that harmed you, you don't necessarily feel that it's wrong to exaggerate evidence. Like seeing the words Air Force on the side of the helicopters, adding on symptoms to people who didn't have them, even faking sunburn spots on your arm. As long as it's in the pursuit of what you believe to be a just settlement, end quote. In your experience, I mean, you know, I, in your experience as a lawyer... How common are false or, I guess, bad faith pieces of litigation? So, so what he's saying is that essentially the litigation itself was not done in bad faith, but that some of the um, damages may have been exaggerated and some of the evidence may have been exaggerated. And in fairness, yes. I do see that. You, when you have a case that you, ha- like, you might be right and you know so much that you are right but you also know that you might not have the evidence to show that in, in court. And so you exaggerate things and then and, and you, you fudge things and, and, and that does happen and it ends up hurting your credibility if you're found out. Um, right. Well, it's, it's it, the same thing that the same thing that it's the same thing that, you know, Bigfoot investigators have done for years where they, you know, stuff a bear suit covered in like filled with meat or whatever into a cooler. And then like, we found Bigfoot. And then it's like, no, you didn't. You're lying. But they're like, yeah, but Bigfoot's real, though, still. It's like, well, how am I supposed to believe you now? Anyways, continue. Right. Yeah, no. No, I mean, that was essentially it. Like, like you do. You do see that a lot um, hmm. from all sides, from all different kinds of litigants. And it it's never smart because you're always going to get found out. But um, mm. it's 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 hard. Like, imagine that you're in this situation that you, you know, you've experienced something painful and hurtful and and, and you know what you saw. And you know that somebody did this to you and everyone around you is saying that you are crazy. They are conflating the story with UFO stuff. They are, they're telling you that you didn't see anything, that you saw a mirage. They're telling you that, you, you know, and, and you don't have any of this evidence. No one went outside and took the soil samples because you don't remember where it happened. You know, like you, you have a doctor that's, um, you know, maybe the, the medical stuff isn't quite fitting with, with what you know happened. You know, they're like, because their initial doctor didn't say anything about radiation poisoning. In fact, I think they tested for radiation poisoning and came back negative. It was only later when these other doctors took a look at the medical records that we started to, to think that, well, maybe maybe it might have been radiation. Um, you even have the military telling you, you we didn't have any you know, we didn't have any helicopters there in Dayton that night. Like, what are you talking about? And so you can see a situation where like, you're in pain and everyone is telling you that you, you didn't see what you saw. Um, so, I mean... 
once you like put all of it into perspective, it's a hundred percent believable why mm. why they might have done something like that, why they might have exaggerated their own injuries, or I mean, and and some of their stories. Remember, you at the very beginning, you said, well, a few months later, now we have this added element to the story where the craft mm-hmm. the craft cut her engine. You mm-hmm. know, the stories are getting a little bit um, a little bit more exaggerated over mm-hmm. time. Um, so I, I, it, it makes sense to me. It's, it's hard. I think it's hard though, in this case. So it like with all this stuff, and I think this is true on both sides, just because something is plausible or possible doesn't mean that it is, doesn't mean that it's the truth. Number one. And also doesn't mean that it's necessarily the most likely option, I guess. Now, if we're looking at this from like an Occam's razor perspective, sure. It would seem to make sense that they were exaggerating things and everything else. However, you know, there is a lot of interesting stuff to this case that I think suggests something real happened. You know, it would be it would be different if they then turned this into a career for themselves. Do you know what I mean? That they are a career UFO witness. That would change things for me. But that's not what they did, you know? Um so it's it's just a weird it's a weird case. I don't know. Yeah. And even, you know, kind of going back to the did they have did they have an incentive to exaggerate? A good point to make is that their their attorney was telling people from the very beginning that, that he didn't think they had a chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Um so you can take that as you want to take it. You know, if if they yeah, maybe they were motivated by money in a twenty million dollar lawsuit. But if they did, really didn't think they were going to win anyway, then why why go through the trouble right, of why? burning yourself? Um, you know, I. I don't yeah, know. why did the lawsuit in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, well, that's it on Cash Landrum, folks. Thank you so much for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I am your host Chris Cogswell. Uh, here with my again my special co host Jen Taylor. Uh, Jen Vanishing Earhart, how's it going? Yeah, we're 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 going great. We're working on uh working on episode twelve right now. Um so Exciting. that should that should be coming out. I don't know when uh, this episode is gonna drop, but as we're speaking, we're expecting it to come out in the next couple of days. Um so you'll get to hear from Bill Snavely and the Blue Angel team that went and um dived off the coast of Buka looking for her plane. So we're excited about that. Oh, man. Super cool. Yeah, I'm excited, too. All right. Uh, Listeners, as always, thanks so much for listening, and we will be back next week with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. 
In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.